True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the second part of our 27th case together. As I say at the start of every episode, if you've enjoyed the show so far, please remember to subscribe on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too, so go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all of the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are also available now on YouTube, on the True Crime Fix channel, so please, if you have enjoyed the show, spread the word as far as possible. Please note that this is the second part of this case, so if you've not listened to part one, please pause here and go and listen to episode 30, which was released last week. As this is a case which is incredibly complicated to unpick, I just want to do a brief recap of where we are so that everyone is up to speed. Hannah Witheridge was a 23-year-old from Hemsby in Norfolk, England. She was taking a break from her course at the University of Essex and had travelled to Thailand despite reservations from her family. David Miller was a 24-year-old from the Isle of Jersey. He was working for a mining company and he had been on a work placement in Australia and decided to stop off in Asia on the way back. He was planning to return to the University of Leeds and to his girlfriend Jessie Howarth in order to complete his master's degree. Both Hannah and David were staying at the Ocean View Bungalows, a cheap budget hotel for backpackers on Syrie Beach on the island of Koh Tao, which is off the coast of Thailand. On the 14th of September, the pair, who did not know each other beforehand and had met at the hotel, went to two bars, Chopper's Sports Bar and the AC Bar, before returning to the hotel. In the early hours of the morning of the 15th of September, David and Hannah were found bludgeoned on the beach by some Burmese workers from a local hotel. Both had items of clothes missing. David was in the sea, whereas Hannah was on land, but the distance between the two bodies was minimal. The bodies were less than 30 metres away from the entrance to their hotel. Due to the size of the island, there was not a large police force, so the scene was compromised early on 
and graphic photographs of the scene appeared on social media. A bloody garden hoe and cigarette butts were found near the bodies. The police had named a number of suspects as outlined in part one, but none of these had produced any positive results. The police were getting significant pressure from the world's media and the tourism department to solve this case. On the 3rd of October, the police paraded around two suspects, Zorlin and Wei Pio, in a reconstruction. So if you thought part one was a complicated web of an investigation, you've heard nothing yet. So ladies and gentlemen, this is your true crime fix. I'm your host Steve, and this is part two of the case written in memory of Hannah Witheridge and David Miller. With both of the victims now having been laid to rest in their respective hometowns, everyone's attention returned to Thailand. Police had had another breakthrough in the case. A black iPhone, which had been found at an address which was linked to WayPO. The Thai police, through checking the serial number with the National Crime Agency in Britain, discovered belonged to David Miller. WayPO claimed that the phone had been found on the beach and it was not a motive for murder or he had any connection to it. Shortly after the arrest, the police lieutenant general of the 8th region assured that they had enough evidence to hand over to the prosecutor's office to proceed the case to court. He reported that the 800-page crime file would now be handed over to the prosecutor by 10am on the 8th of October so that they could verify the evidence. In turn, a team of five lawyers would trawl through the file to check that there was no holes in it. In response, human rights representatives who look after the rights of migrant workers led by Andy Hall instructed a team of attorneys and interpreters and sought permission from the Koh Samoy Provincial Court to visit and interview Zorlin and Wei Pio. It was now that the pressure was being piled on the prosecutor's office. The media circus surrounding the trial accused the Thai authorities of a fixation on the Burmese, as well as chopping and changing the suspects. This coupled with the story of Sean McKenna, who himself fled the island in fear of being a scapegoat. In a story which broke on the 11th of October, the 26-year-old busker from Lanarkshire in Scotland posted a comment on his Facebook page stating, The Mafia are trying to kill me. He stated that he had got a cut on his arm when he was doing some bar work at the Touch Bar where he worked on the 9th of September. He said that he did not know who the killers were but felt sure that someone on the island did as he had been forewarned about who would be set up and used as a scapegoat. He stated, I never said I knew the killers. He said, if I died that night, it was the guy from 
and the name was redacted, who did it. He continued, I think he knew who it was and needed a scapegoat. He then referred to his wound. It would have been enough for me to hang myself in order for them to point the finger at me. Apparently Sean had been chased into a convenience store by a police officer and Montrewat Tuvekian, the person who first reported the bodies. This was one of many stories to emerge which involved either witness torture, bribery or threats. Thailand's National Human Rights Commission commented on the situation later that week after more concerns appeared online about Wei Pio and Zor Lin being scapegoats. Prinya Sirisarakan, who was the commissioner, suggested that the police should disclose more details about the case to clear the air. He said that during a meeting with the two suspects, they had confessed to the murder. He did say, however, that they did not look as if they'd been treated very well by the police. Andy Hall was the advocate for the rights of migrant workers, and he stated that there was a number of Burmese migrants who had reported to him with significant injuries which had been documented following police questioning. People came forward with bruises and lacerations, but the worst one that he saw was a man with bad blistering on his skin where the police had allegedly tipped boiling hot water over him. There was a police video that emerged at the time of Wei Pio confessing to the police of how he had murdered David and Hannah. He had two officers on the floor in the missionary sex position who were supposed to represent David and Hannah and it showed Wei Pio using a prop which was supposed to represent the garden hoe, demonstrating how he'd attacked the pair, hitting David over the head first. I watched this reenactment, which is available online, and two things struck me immediately. I usually try to refrain from offering an opinion, but I need to here. Firstly, David had a girlfriend back in Jersey who apparently he was pretty serious with, so I'm not sure about the whole sex angle, but if this was the case then why do it 30 metres from your hotel? But that is not the key question that I had. When you see the size of Wei Pio, you wonder how he is capable of subduing the larger David. However, the design of the garden hoe is to turn soil, and has sharp pointed ends. Using that as a weapon, it would have been very easy to kill someone. Anyway, on the 9th of October, the public prosecutor's office asked the police to supply them with more crucial information and fix certain flaws. On the 10th of October, both of the suspects retracted their confessions, saying that the police had tortured them into it. Wei Pio and Zor Lin claimed that they had been beaten in the testicles before being sexually assaulted by the police. Both claimed that they were also threatened with electrocution and risked being thrown into the middle of the Gulf of Thailand if they did not cooperate. 
the chief of Koh Samoy District Prison, where both men were being held, said that both of the suspects were on suicide watch in case they were feeling overly guilty and because they were showing signs of stress and therefore had been isolated from the general prison population. By the 16th of October, the deputy commander for Thailand's 8th regional precinct said that their case file was now perfect. He said, We have added information to the case and the incomplete parts that the prosecutor wanted the police to improve were now perfect. He added that the extra information requested did not concern to any central details of the case and the prosecutors would take on the case within the next week. By the 20th of October, the parents of the two suspects and the Metropolitan Police Force had both arrived in Thailand. Tun Tun and Mei Thien were there for Wei Pio, and Fu Shui Nu and Theng Shui Yang were there for Zorlin. Both families pled their loved one's innocence, but it all fell on deaf ears. The UK police were there to check the credibility of the investigation, something that the Thai Prime Minister was reluctant to comply with, saying that the Thai sovereignty will not allow the UK to investigate the case on their own, but the Thai police are happy to pass on any information. Moreover, he explained that the Thai police were no longer investigating the crime as the case file was with the prosecutor's office. In addition to this, the police strongly denied the claims of torture, saying that during the process, the suspects had gone through three separate medical investigations, the first being upon detention, the second in the provincial prison of Koh Tao, and the final exam was conducted by the police's Institute of Forensic Medicine. Another complaint which was made was that the two suspects had been assaulted by their interpreter. According to Thanu Akuchote, the interpreter which was used during the investigations was from a different region of Myanmar from the two suspects. Apparently, the two regions speak a different language, as well as the two regions holding an ancient grudge against each other. Thanu was now representing the pair as the court-appointed lawyer had been withdrawn. He met with Zorlin and Wei Pio on the 26th of October with two other lawyers present. After the meeting, the legal team asked for Zorlin and Wei Pio to have x-rays conducted on marks on their body. The second complaint that they wanted to lodge was with regards to the lack of legal representation that the two suspects had throughout the investigation. On the 27th of October, the Koh Samoy court approved the prosecution's request that the two suspects were detained for a further 12 days as they needed further time in order to complete their investigation. The judge, who looked into the request, said that they could be held for up to 84 days without charge. On the 30th of October, 
the Royal Thai Police Commissioner warned of new measures being taken to prosecute those who were undermining the police's integrity, stating it was causing a rift and a threat to the economy. He said that under Article 14 of the Computer Crime Act, anybody found posting false or inaccurate information would be subject to five years in prison and a 100,000 baht fine, which equates to about £2,466.15. The commissioner's threat came after accusations again appeared online, indicating that the son of Vora Pantuvekian was involved in the murders. One post, which was widely shared, suggested that Varot had fled the island immediately after the murders, and the photo which his lawyer had shown, as mentioned in part one of the case, had been photoshopped. Mr Tuvekian claimed that these false allegations had tarnished his family's reputation and business. Of course, this was not the only suspicion which was pointing to the Tuvekian family. Montuot was of course the first person who initially discovered the body, chased down Sean McKenna in the convenience store, as well as having unauthorised access to the crime scene when the police were collecting evidence. Ultimately, Varrock gave his DNA to the police and the sample did not match the DNA found on Hannah's body. On the 11th of November, the police from the UK returned to England, having completed their work as far as possible. Having been there at the request of David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, they said that they would complete their report into the integrity of the investigation upon their return home. On the 4th of December 2014, Zorlin and Wei were officially charged by the prosecutor's office with the murders of Hannah Witheridge and David Miller. The Attorney General's office said that both had been charged with conspiracy to commit murder, rape, criminal cover-up, illegally entering Thailand and staying in the country without permission. WPO was also being charged with theft in relation to David's phone and sunglasses. Both suspects pled not guilty on the 9th of December to all six charges. In Thailand, murder is a capital crime for which the punishment is death. A brief history of the death penalty in Thailand. From 1938, the method of execution in Thailand was the firing squad. Initially it was carried out by a single shot rifle, but sometime later migrated to the condemned being handcuffed to a pillar with his or her back to the executioner. A thin sheet separated the two. The executioner would then open fire on the prisoner with a machine gun. Until 2001, these executions had been conducted in public. Yes, my dear listeners, one of the most barbaric modern-day methods of execution that I'd ever heard of. 
the last of these public executions had taken place as recently as April 2001, when Hong Kong national Lee Wang Kwang was executed in this manner for drug smuggling. Since 2003, however, like many of the states in the United States, the only method of execution is lethal injection. And between 2003 and 2014, only six people had been executed. On the 13th of January 2015, the defence team set up a crowdfunding campaign for Zorlin and Wei Pio's defence. On the 17th of February, it was revealed that £3,000 had been raised on a GoFundMe site after the Witheridge family stated that it was going to cost them up to £12,000 for the family to attend the trial. Hannah's sister Laura said, We have been fortunate that a charity has offered us some financial support. However, even with their contribution, we estimate the costs will likely amount to between £10,000 and £12,000. The word has spread that we are desperately trying to raise funds in order to get out to Thailand for the trial, and we have been overwhelmed by the incredible response from the people wanting to help. Many have messaged me about hosting bake-offs, quiz nights, tabletop sales and even triathlons. We are incredibly grateful for those amazing selfless kind offers from those around us including strangers in some instances. As always, I would like to extend our heartfelt thanks to each and every one of you who has been able to support us during this impossible time. It's the selflessness and kindness of everyone around us that is going some way to restoring our faith in the human race. Before we go into details of the court case, I just want to give a brief outline of the Thai justice system. Thailand's court system is split into three tiers for criminal cases. The court of first instance is where the case is initially heard and then there are two appeal opportunities. The first being the Court of Appeals and then the Supreme Court of Thailand. The trial started on the 8th of July 2015 in Koh Samoy Court. The Miller family arrived in Thailand just before the proceedings began and paid a fitting tribute to David. I quote, We have travelled to Koh Samoy for the start of the trial into the horrific murder of our loving son and brother David and Hannah. The act which ended David's life devastated our family and his friends. Just hours before he died, David was talking to us with his usual enthusiasm, describing the beauty of Koh Tao and the friendliness of the Thai people. Over the coming weeks, we hope to gain a better understanding as to how such a wonderful young man lost his life in such an idyllic surrounding in such a horrible way. This pain will remain part of us for the rest of our lives. We have borne our thoughts in silence as we have not wanted to influence any court proceedings 
but simply want to see justice done fairly and openly. We ask for the media to afford David and Hannah dignity in the reporting of this trial and also that we are given the privacy and respect while we battle with our emotions during the difficult weeks ahead. Just to let you know that the reporting of this trial will not be as straightforward as normal, but, as you have probably gathered already, nothing about this case has been straightforward anyway. The reason for this being that the court in Koh Samoy was so small that the journalists were not able to get in. Therefore, the reporting of the events may not be correct chronologically, but all of this evidence was presented sometime between the 8th of July 2015 and the 23rd of December 2015. The judges were Mr. Potong, Miss Watanasi Waco, and Miss Jansawang. The prosecution presented the case in the way that it had been laid out in the confession video. The two suspects had been smoking cigarettes on Syri Beach and had noticed David and Hannah being intimate. Waypo had then attacked David over the head numerous times with the garden hoe before stealing his phone and dumping him in the water. After that they attacked Hannah, grabbing her and holding her down, punching her in the face and body, rendering her unconscious before raping her and killing her with the same hoe and then fleeing the scene. They reported that when they were found, David was naked and Hannah had her skirt lifted up above her waist and her underwear removed. The prosecution described the scene, saying that there was a lot of blood and human flesh on the sand where the attack had taken place. There was also a pile of clothes that they believed to belong to both of the victims. They explained how the two bodies were moved from the position that they had been located in early on due to the concerns of the moving tide. They reported how the DNA was collected from the crime scene and was sent for forensic testing. Please avoid the next bit if you are not good with graphic descriptions. The results of the autopsy stated that two oblique jagged tear wounds were found on David's scalp as well as his cheekbone and eye socket on the right side being broken as well as his jaw. Hannah had similar oblique wounds to the head but the force of those had penetrated through her scalp to the brain. Her skull around the forehead as well as both cheekbones and eye sockets were broken, as well as her upper and lower jaw. There were also bite marks around her right nipple, and the autopsy showed that Hannah had been raped both vaginally and anally. DNA was obtained from the saliva and semen found on her body. The police then presented the CCTV footage of the three men including Momon, near the 7-Eleven shortly after Hannah and her friends walked by. Also, 
The CCTV of the Asian man running away topless was in the direction of Momon's house. Momon had an alibi though, as he had left before the attacks to visit his girlfriend. The men had finished work in their respective stores at 10pm, and as both were off work on the 15th of September, went for some beers on the beach and played guitar. On the second day of evidence, Police Lieutenant Colonel Nurad presented a list of exhibits relating to the case, including the garden hoe and David's phone, but failed to present any of the key forensic DNA, stating that it might have been destroyed. As I have mentioned, not a lot of information is available with regards to the prosecution's case, but it does appear that this investigation did have a number of flaws in it. For example, Dr. Pontip Rojana Sunand, who was renowned for being Thailand's best-known forensic scientist, was not allowed any involvement. In fact, during the trial she retested the garden hoe and found that the DNA on it did not match either of the two suspects, but did match David and another unknown male. It was pointed out as well that the police were very forthcoming with the fact that they suspected a Burmese migrant, despite the fact that they arrested a British backpacker as well. There was also the issue raised that when there were leads pointing towards the head of an influential Thai family, the chief of police steered the investigation away from it. The DNA found on Hannah's body, which matched the DNA on a cigarette, matched the suspects. In court, an officer who took the swabs from Hannah claimed that the DNA extraction started at 8am, a recollection in itself which could not be correct, considering the pathologist recorded the autopsy beginning at 11am. The successful profiling was completed by 10pm, less than 12 hours to obtain DNA from at least three people, Hannah and the two suspects. Jane Topin, who was a renowned Australian forensic scientist, questioned the plausibility of working this quickly and getting accurate results. She explained that extracting DNA from a mixed sample was a difficult and time-consuming process. Miss Topin was not called to testify in court, despite being there on behalf of the defence, as it appeared that neither side nor the three judges understood the complexities of DNA extraction. The prosecution provided the court with a one-page report which showed visible alterations and no explanations as to why the results had been altered. Despite the fact that Miss Topin was there as a defence witness, they never called her to cross-examine the match which was presented in court. When Zorlin and Wei Pio were put on the stand by the defence, they told of their experiences which forced a confession out of them. Wei Pio said, I quote, They kicked me in the back, 
punched me and slapped me. They threatened to chop off my arms and legs and throw my torso into the sea and feed the fish. They also said that they were going to take me into another room and electrocute me. Police told me that I had no passport and no rights, adding that he had been told that Burmese migrants had died before for not telling the truth. But as mentioned earlier, the prosecution had evidence of three separate checks that had been done on the suspects. The most frustrating part about this case is that I cannot find anywhere information of the actual evidence presented to the court by the prosecution. The majority of this evidence has come from documents held by organisations such as Amnesty International and the Burmese Workers' Rights Groups, which understandably slanted it in one direction, much like many of the Netflix documentaries that we all enjoy to binge-watch. On the 24th of December 2015, the three judges sitting in court found the defendant Zor Lin and Wei Pio guilty of all charges. As I mentioned earlier, murder is a capital crime and therefore both men were sentenced to death. They were also sentenced to 20 years imprisonment for rape. They received six months for the immigration charges and Wei Pio received a further two years for theft. The end of the judgement reading though, as both defendants have been sentenced to death, this is the only sentence that they will serve. Outside of court, David's brother Michael Miller gave a statement on behalf of his family. We believe that after a difficult start, the Royal Thai Police conducted a methodical and thorough investigation. Having listened carefully to all the evidence, and despite what their lawyers say, it is our opinion that the evidence against Weipo and Zorlin is absolutely overwhelming. They raped to satisfy their selfish desires and murdered to cover up that fact. They have shown no remorse during the trial. Initially, they confessed for almost two weeks and then recanted in an attempt to avoid justice. We hope the campaigners who have relentlessly publicised this case will respect the process of law and the decision of the court. We believe the correct verdict has been reached. Finally, we'd like to thank everyone who has supported us over the last year. Our thoughts are also with the Witheridge family and the horrors they are also enduring with so much dignity. Our lives have been changed forever. Nothing brings David home. No last hugs, no goodbyes. But whatever our anguish, the love we have for David can never be taken away. Our 24 years of memories and his beaming smile will always be cherished. David was intelligent and hardworking. He was caring, inclusive, enthusiastic and fun. He is irreplaceable to us. Our hearts will always be filled with the brightness that he brought to our lives. We remain so proud of him. We and his friends miss him terribly. 
Andy Hall from the Migrant Workers' Rights Network gave his comments on behalf of Zor Lin and Wei Pio's family. We, we disagree with the verdict uh, and the lawyers will be preparing a, an immediate appeal. Uh, the defendants have said today uh, that whatever the decision, they, they accept the decision, but they believe very strongly that one day uh, the truth on this case will, will come out and they're confident that during the appeal process they will be acquitted. The Witheridge family gave the following statement. As the trial concludes and the verdict is delivered, our family once again find ourselves in the path of a whirlwind of emotions and difficulties. In these challenging times, we try to concentrate our efforts on remembering our beautiful Hannah for the fun, vibrant and incredible young woman that she was. Had her life not been tragically and unnecessarily cut short, she would now have completed her master's degree in speech and language therapy and would be about to embark on a fulfilling and worthwhile career. She would have gone on to make a significant difference to so many people's lives. On the basis of Hannah's dedication and passion for speech and language therapy and her excellent feedback she received during her placements. The University of Essex has introduced an award for outstanding excellence in clinical placements in her memory. It will be named the Hannah Witheridge Award for Clinical Excellence. Hannah will be the first recipient As a family, we are touched by this beautiful tribute to Hannah as the hard-working, dedicated young woman that she was. The past year has served as an unimaginably impossible time for our family. We have found the trial process extremely difficult and our trips out to Thailand to attend court made for particularly distressing experiences we found listening to proceedings very challenging and we've had to endure a lot of painful and confusing information. We now need some time as a family to digest the outcome of the trial and figure out the most appropriate way to tell our story. If you thought that the controversy was going to stop there, then you're well and truly mistaken. The activist group We Are Anonymous posted a video online against the Thai police. Anonymous has learned that the Thai police have accused innocent people before and would rather blame foreigners or migrants for such crimes so as to protect their tourism industry than accuse their own Thai locals that may deter tourists from choosing Thailand as their holiday destination. Anonymous is against any government who use prisoners including innocent prisoners for the benefit of getting a quick conviction to solve a case or for any kind of other publicity stunt for whatever purpose. Anonymous views these findings that we have learned, a disgrace to the, the Thai police with the way in which they handle their investigations of serious crimes that have been committed on their islands against foreign tourists. As a result, 
the Thai police systems were hacked. Following the passing of another British tourist on the island of Koh Tao, Luke Miller, on the 8th of January 2016, Laura Witheridge, Hannah's sister, posted a message on Facebook with regards to the way that the Witheridge family had been treated throughout the investigation. Hannah's family had kept quiet about their experiences before this. I'm quoting the post verbatim. So, as some of you may have already seen, there's been another death of yet another British national on Kotel. I wasn't going to post anything, not until I logged on here this morning to see that a friend had shared the link warning people not to go there. It wasn't the sharing of the link or the warning that triggered this lengthy status, as I hope that people do share these things and try and warn people not to go. It was the ignorant comment someone made about how Thailand is the most beautiful place in the world, and it frustrated me this morning. Aesthetically, on a postcard or a photograph, maybe. However, literally, I have to disagree. Lots of things look beautiful. You only have to consider a lion or a tiger. Beautiful to look at, yes. But get too close and they will tear you apart and feed you to their young. My point being that ascetic beauty can lure you into a very dangerous trap. Since Hannah was taken from us, I'm continually asked whether I would warn the world against the dangers of Thailand. I am asked if I will warn people because I might just save someone's life. This person's comment serves as the perfect example of why I would be wasting my time. People can be ignorant and many, probably the majority, have very short memories. Countless times I've logged into Facebook and seen statuses made by people who know both Hannah and I who have gone out there anyway. They think it won't happen to them. Well, guess what? Neither did we. No one is immune. Many Thais hate Westerners and they have little to no regard for human life. I don't say this lightly without reason. Let me share a few facts with you about this beautiful place you speak of. Many of the Thai people have no regard for human life. My evidence for this statement, firstly, some quotes of the things that have been said to my bereaved, heartbroken family by the judges and court officials at the trial of the two Burmese migrants. Why are you here? Why do you care? She is dead already. Why are you so bothered? Just go home and make another one. Why are you making such a fuss? She'll be back in 30 days as something else. She may have better luck next time. Would it surprise you if I told you that the Thai's view on drug possession is a more serious offence than rape or murder? 
or that the vast majority of the Thai police force are corrupt. What if I told you that when we went to Thailand to bring Hannah home, we were offered the opportunity to go to the Royal Thai Police Headquarters for an official update, but that on arrival we were taken into a large room, left there for five minutes before the doors opened and around 200 journalists were allowed into the room and we were ambushed by this mob of hungry journalists shoving cameras in our faces. The Thai police chief had no intentions of giving us an update. After all, the bungled investigation meant he had nothing to tell us. The invitation was so that he could make money out of our misery. The press had paid him generously for five minutes to capture photographs of our family. What if I told you that since we lost Hannah, there have been more suspicious deaths on Kotal? You probably haven't heard of them all, as they were not all British nationals. The deaths, where possible, are covered up as suicides and accidents. This would have happened with Hannah if it had not been for the hideous brutality of her passing. Luke Miller is the latest casualty of Kotal. I highly suspect that with this latest tragedy, the Thais will say that it was an accidental death caused by drugs. Hiding the truth and offering a story that suits is often something that they do. My thoughts are with Luke Miller's family and friends. What if I told you that I had had many death threats from the Thai people since they murdered my sister? That they had defaced photographs of me saying that the killers had only done half the job? What if I told you that people commented on these photographs saying things like there is still time and tick tock, tick tock? What if I told you that I had been sent crime scene photographs? What if I told you that I had been chased in my car? What if I told you that the ties offered us compensation to try and keep us quiet? Obviously, we were absolutely appalled and told them to shove it. What if I told you that I am now frightened of my own shadow? That I am constantly looking over my shoulder? That I am exhausted but frightened to sleep because of these nightmares? I miss my sister desperately. My heart is heavy and my mind is tired. On the 23rd of May 2016, Wei Pio and Zorlin appealed against the ruling, with their mothers Mei Tian and Fu Shui Nu submitting the papers at Koh Tao Court where they were convicted. The two men had been serving their sentence at Bang Quang Prison, which is situated 11 kilometres north of Bangkok. Andy Hall stated, We have major problems with the judgments, particularly over the DNA evidence, and we do not believe that the court can say beyond a reasonable doubt that Zorlin and Wei Pio were responsible for the events that took place in September 2014. 
The appeal was heard at the Court of Appeals on the 1st of March 2017. Neither Zorlin or Wei Pio were at the court as the judges upheld the original verdict. David Miller's family were there at the hearing and the family gave a statement afterwards which seemed to be a synopsis of what had been presented in court. I quote, We have always said that we did not want innocent men sentenced nor guilty parties acquitted on a technicality. In the end, the evidence is overwhelming and we feel that justice has been done. During autopsy, semen in Hannah's body had been found and this was analysed in the accredited Institute of Forensic Medicine and Pathology in Bangkok well before the two guilty men were detained. This find triggered an extensive DNA testing of all workers and inhabitants around the crime scene, eventually leading the police to the link that they sought, and to Zorlin and Wei Pio, they said. Their DNA was retested in court and found to match the results from the sample taken at the autopsy. The defence team was given the opportunity to retest the autopsy samples and they declined despite our requests to do so. That moment was telling. Apart from the forensic tests, circumstantial evidence also pointed to the same direction. Both Zorlin and Wei Pio admitted in court to being at the crime scene that night, just feet from where the murder weapon was kept and replaced, and metres from where the murders took place. The claim was that they saw and heard nothing in the moonlight. Our own visits to the beach on Koh Tao under a similar moon make this claim impossible for us to believe. Wei Pio admitted in court to returning to the beach during the night and having our son's mobile phone in his possession the next day. His friends had given evidence that he tried to sell it to them before attempting to destroy it. We were able to confirm the identity of David's phone via its IMEI number, and this number was matched to the recovered phone in court. Upon detention by the police, Zorlin and Wei Pio were held and initially interrogated in separate locations with multiple witnesses testifying that they saw no mishandling nor evidenced any sign of torture. Their claims of torture were never corroborated and Zorlin's explanation in court of why he had no marks of the beating that he described was extraordinary. He claimed that these marks were removed by a police medication rubbed on him after the torture was finished. In court, we also heard from them that they had told their first lawyers appointed by the Solicitor's Council of Thailand and anyone else that asked that they were guilty. This included fellow prisoners, doctors, interpreters and the police. We now believe 
that it was simply press and internet attention in the week following the crime reconstruction that induced this guilty pair to change their admissions of guilt to pleas of not guilty. The claims of torture being merely to explain their change of plea. Zorlin and Wei Pio will now have time in jail to reflect on their horrific crimes. The defence, however, said that they would continue to fight, arguing the circumstantial evidence and the unreliable police testing procedure. Andy Hall again commenting that the courts had not proved the guilt of Zorlin and Wei Pio beyond a reasonable doubt. Zorlin and Wei Pio were given 30 days to appeal to the Court of Appeals in order to get a hearing at the Supreme Court. Thailand's highest judicial court. This was submitted and on the 22nd of September 2017, permission was accepted for the final appeal. Zorlin and Wei Pio's Thai lawyers submitted the 319-page final appeal document. The appeal was on the basis that the two men had been denied justice and fairness throughout the trial and are innocent despite the death sentence. They stated that Thai police had violated standard police procedure in the collection of DNA and phone records. The phone records related to a case at the Royal Courts of Justice in London where the National Crime Agency illegally gave phone records to the Thai police which in turn helped convict both men. They cited an example of a case six years earlier where the Supreme Court had overturned the sentence because even though there was a confession, there was not significant evidence for the death penalty. On the 29th of August 2019, the Supreme Court again dismissed the application, meaning that the execution would go ahead. In Thai law, the two men were able to apply for a royal pardon within 60 days of the dismissal of their appeal. If this is dismissed, then the execution would go ahead with no further rights to appeal. Neither man showed any emotion as they listened to the judgment through an interpreter. On the 29th of October 2019, the Lawyers' Council of Thailand submitted the appeal letter on behalf of Zorlin and Wei Pio. Hitur Shit, who was representing the pair, said, In the appeal letter, we are requesting that the death sentence be commuted as the two are young and supporting their widowed mothers. Some think that the two will be acquitted if the king grants a pardon. I have never heard of such a thing. The death sentence, at best, will be commuted to long-term or life imprisonment. I have never seen an acquittal. At the time of recording, the result of this request has not been announced, and if there are any updates in the future, I'll keep you up to date. So that ends the legal side. I think that the lack of transparency in this case 
causes for an issue for anyone who has an opinion on it. As I've mentioned before, there are a lot of vocal groups for the defence, but it is unclear what they are basing it on. Whereas information in the UK, US and Australia, places that I have covered cases from before, is more readily available, the case against the two suspects is not clear. But it has managed to get through three courts, which means there must be some merit to it. But as I've said before, I don't like to air my own opinions on this podcast. Please let me know your thoughts through social media as I really cannot make my mind up. So what about the legacy of the two victims? On the 22nd of July 2015, David Miller was awarded a first-class master's degree from the University of Leeds posthumously for his civil and structural engineering course. David's mother Susan and girlfriend Jessie were there to accept the degree on his behalf. The university's pro-vice-chancellor, Vivian Jones, also paid tribute to their former student. But one of today's graduates is not with us. David Miller, who should have completed his MEng in Civil and Structural Engineering this year, was murdered in Thailand last September. He was hard-working, bright and conscientious, with everything to look forward to. And his death is a terrible loss to the university, to the engineering profession, but above all, to his family and friends, who are here to receive his posthumous award. I'd like to extend a very special welcome to them, both personally and on behalf of the university. Thank you. Awarded posthumously and collected by Ms. Sue Miller and Jesse Howarth, David William Miller. On the 2nd of October 2015, the Jersey Post newspaper reported that David's family and friends had gathered for a blessing of a new memorial bench. Dave's bench is now situated on Jersey's north coast cliff path between Plaremont and Grenet. The bench carries the inscription, Never let a person sit alone with a plaque showing the location of a star which is named after him. The Norfolk Police Force named an award at their Safer Communities Awards event after Hannah. The inaugural Hannah Witheridge Special Recognition Award was given in 2014 to the family liaison officers who had done so much for the family during their difficult times. Every year thereafter, the award was given to a member of the police force for recognition of going above and beyond the line of duty. Her sister, Laura, gave out the award every year in Hannah's memory, as she believed that the work that the family liaison officers, who surrounded themselves with grief and despair every day, were remarkable people. An example of one of the winners was PC Chris Alexander, who had been deployed as a family liaison officer to the wife and children of a man who had died in a car accident. As he left the family's home and was travelling back along the A47, he spotted a woman on the wrong side of the bridge security rail, obviously contemplating jumping, 
PC Alexander stayed with the woman and eventually managed to talk her to safety. Since the death of their daughter, unfortunately her mother and father Tony and Susan have separated. But unfortunately this is not the end of the heartache for them. On Monday the 16th of September 2019, five years and one day on from the death of her sister, Laura Daniels, as she was now known following her marriage in 2018, passed away at the age of 30. Laura had been admitted to hospital gravely ill and sadly did not recover. As a mark of respect, the Norfolk Police Force have now named the award after Laura and Hannah. Losing your second daughter so suddenly makes you wonder how much more pain should one family have to suffer. So that's it for this week. Next week, I'll be finishing this little mini-series with the story behind some of the other mysterious deaths on the island of Kotal and then we will go back to the regular fortnightly shows afterwards. Trust me though, next week will be an eye-opener, because don't forget, true crime does not always necessarily mean murder. Please remember if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more, follow us on Twitter, at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. You can also visit the new website, www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk. This is also a reminder that the podcast now has a Patreon so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search truecrimefix or go to at truecrimefixpod on Instagram. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com or go to the Contact Us page on the website. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.